Welcome to The Jay Martin Show. If you're new to the show, my name is Jay. I'm an investor. I'm here looking for the best home for my cash. And my guest today is Lynette Zhang, Chief Market Analyst at ITM Trading and an absolute currency geek. Lynette has spent decades studying currency cycles. This is really her zone of genius. And so the reason I wanted to chat with Lynette today is because I've been spending a lot of time thinking about whether or where we're at in terms of the sunset years of the American empire and the US dollar. Inevitably, all things come to an end. This era will end too. The question I'm trying to answer is what comes next? And so Lynette and I spent a lot of time debating that question today. It was super fun. But first, if you are looking to understand the commodity market better and wondering how you can enter as an investor and begin allocating capital, we've just produced the Commodity University. This is a 10-chapter video course where we walk through the very basics and fundamentals of commodity investing, literally beginning with what is a commodity, all the way until chapter 10, portfolio construction, and in the middle, supply and demand dynamics, economic indicators to pay attention to, and deep dives into gold, silver, copper, uranium, and energy metals. I am super jacked on this course. If you want to check it out, it's at thecommodityuniversity.com. I lecture for 10 chapters straight, and I'm joined by a bunch of awesome guests like Rick Rule and, and many others. So thecommodityuniversity.com to get started on your journey as a commodity investor. This is a great place to do it. But here is Lynette Zhang. Enjoy. All right, here I am joined by Lynette Zhang. Lynette, it's great to see you and thanks for coming back on the program. Always for you, Jay, always. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. And I thought a smart place for us to start today would be looking at the treasury market because right before I hit record, we were discussing how you think most people are misinterpreting what they're seeing in the treasury market or just aren't paying attention to some very important threads. So I want to jump into some of those threads today. Well, I, I do. And first, I want to remind the listeners that I have been paying attention and studying currencies and currency life cycles since 1987. And what I'm seeing in the treasury market is, and, and, and you need to understand, that is the foundation of the global financial system. And it is also the way in which money is created in this system. And there is extreme volatility. The treasury market has become de-anchored. And the big money, the smart money, so the government money, the central bank money, those that would buy treasuries and hold them to create a level of stability in the treasury market, they are getting out of the market. But the US government is issuing a ton of new debt. And so far, the response has been very lackluster because there aren't really many buyers in that market. The buyers that are coming in to replace those steady hands are, uh, forgive me for saying this, but dumb money. They're using the institutional investors that you give your money to in mutual funds, in pensions, in 401ks, in ETFs, so all those annuities, insurance companies. These are the people that are playing with your money, the public's money. And they're selling it as, oh, look at this. You're going to get this five and a half percent or you're going to get this interest rate spike. And, and then 
The Fed is going to be forced when we go into this next crisis to reduce interest rates. So you're going to get a pop in the value of the bonds and you're going to make so much money on these bonds. What the public doesn't understand is take a look at inflation. This is, I know that this is really complicated, but inflation is telling you that those dollars are losing value. This is much bigger crisis than I think what people see. They think this is going into a normal recession. This isn't. This is going into hyperinflationary depression because there are no buyers in the market of treasuries other than mom and pop in the general public anymore. Can they really support that market and keep it stable? No, they can't. No, they can't. So, so to recap some of this, we're seeing a bit of a swap in the from the historic holders of treasuries being sovereigns, right? Sovereign banks and, and foreign nations to more retail investors via uh, managed products, mutual funds, hedge funds, all of this stuff. So that's the swap of like smart money to dumb money. It's you know not a bad analogy because you're like the long-term money versus the short-term money, right? Another, another way to verbalize that. The risk Thank you. is that we are oversupplying the market with treasuries. There's a lack of buyers right now. Now, it, it struck me because I saw, like there's an article in the Financial Times uh, last week, and you'd never see something like this. I'm just going to read a sentence from it. Uh, this came out on October 9th. Um, Uncertainty around U.S. solvency and or p- political stability is high, uh, raising fears that political dysfunction might someday cause a missed bond repayment. Um, now, for the treasury market to actually collapse, I can't imagine any state would stand by and just watch that happen. So what they're going to do is ease monetary policy, right? Start printing excessively. This mm-hmm. is going to inspire the inflationary wave that you're discussing, right? Leaving mm-hmm. the, the treasury holders victim of that. Did I, am I understanding that, that correctly? That was great. Okay. <laughs> that was fabulous. That was perfect. Yes. Okay. So there's two options here, right? Maybe could we dive into the dysfunction of the market a little bit? So is it like a supply and demand issue or what's the what's the crisis within, within the treasury market right now? Well, right now, yes, it is a supply and oversupply to the loss of demand. But, you know, this isn't something that just happened. We started seeing dysfunction in the treasury market in 2015. That was so, and, and actually prior to that, um, and I can send you this this graph. They don't they don't supply this anymore, but it's the TYVIX, which is the ten year Treasury Volatility and Index. And you could see up until two thousand and eight that it was just a dash, which means there was not a lot of price action, which is what you should have in a foundation, right? Not a light, lot of price movement, right, on a day to day basis. In two thousand and eight, that started to go to Uh, up and down, more volatility in there, more price movement on a daily basis. And in 2013, they handed it over to to the traders, who they're now calling bond vigilantes, right? But the traders, and you could see a lot more price movement in the treasury bond. So that's like building your house on what you think is bedrock, but in reality, you have built it on uh, on on a fault that is now we're inside of an earthquake and you look at the volatility in the treasury market 
a big part of it? Yes, absolutely, is supply and demand. But it's also, as they mentioned in the Financial Times market, I mean, how many times can they bring us to the brink, and we're coming up to it again, of a government closure? And what does that really cost, not just in terms of dollars, but particularly in terms of confidence. So why would other sovereigns want to buy our debt? Okay, so I want to back up just to make sure. I want to ask this question. I should have asked it initially. You mentioned the treasury market is the foundation of the global financial system. Mm -hmm. Can you expand on that statement? Just, just why yes. exactly is the treasury market the foundation of the global finance system? Well, number one, because the U.S. dollar has been, quote unquote, the world reserve currency since the 40s. And so as the world reserve currency, and now this has not really been true since 2002, but or 2000 when they brought the euro in. But in, in, in theory, anyway, if you are a government, a corporation, or certainly individuals know this, going outside of your borders to buy anything, lumber, steel, oil, et cetera, you had no other option but to do it with U.S. dollars. Now, you know, the arrangement that the U.S. government had with the Saudi Arabian government created that petrodollar, and the whole system is now crumbling. You know, we know that Saudi Arabia has have joined the BRICS nation, and they're getting much cozier with China and Russia and really kind of snubbing the US. So what's really happening in here too is the overt loss of the US dollar's position as the world reserve currency. Now, the normal public doesn't understand any of that. They know that if they're gonna travel in Europe, um, there used to be, because well, let's see, I was in France and oh, it was a number of years ago and I was there recently, but a number of years ago, they wanted dollars. And so anybody out there that's traveled around the world um, a while ago know that everybody preferred to get paid in dollars, not the local currency. But today you go over there, you're not paying in dollars. They don't want dollars. So there is a transition and a shift that's happening in the US in that status. In the meantime, you have the government and, and individuals as well. There's a lot of polarization that is happening and it's always kind of like a divide and conquer. So truthfully, and this is not something I can prove, so you have to know this is just my opinion, but when you are out of purchasing power value, in the currency, which all currencies basically are. Officially, the US dollar has lost 97% out of its original purchasing power. And the tool that they use to regulate the rate and speed of inflation are interest rates. And we had been anchored for what, 15 years at 0% interest, which means all of those entities that had to buy dollars to satisfy their need to go globally and buy other assets and goods, right? When you take a look at that, I mean, we are, do they need this crisis to transition us into CBDCs? 
Yes, they do, right? They need something to create enough of a panic. And, and if you look too, what have we been thrown from crisis to crisis to crisis to crisis to crisis, right? So at this point, people are looking at it. They don't understand how it, that it impacts absolutely everything they do, including the government's ability to grow more debt and create more dollars and bail out banks like they did with Silicon Valley and the regional banks back in March and April. They can't even really create those dollars without creating that hyperinflation. This is the end of the current system. And you really need to get to safety. And we've been sold a bill of goods that the treasury market is the largest and safest and most liquid pool. But that liquidity, the ability to buy and sell without majorly moving prices has been declining in earnest since 2015. So I think this is it. I mean, I, I really do. So there's two things happening here, as I can understand. On the demand fronts, there is a lack of confidence in the solvency of the United States of America, right? That's decreasing the long-term demand, the demand for long-term treasuries. In addition, we're seeing the de-dollarization trend. So there's now optionality. You can transact and com conduct global business outside of the US dollar. It's like, yep. maybe you could argue it's like slight transactions on the margin, but it's growing and it's actually not. It's like, maybe, you know, one of the world's largest commodity exporters, if not the largest, Russia selling gas and oil for yuan. And, uh, you know, more transactions like this are occurring. So we know this. We know the de-dollarization trends occurring. We can say with confidence that the world is losing confidence in the solvency of the United States. That decreases the demand for treasuries. And then on the supply side, U.S. is running $2 trillion deficits right now. They need to be printing more currency. They need to be issuing more tre treasuries to raise money. They don't have buyers. They're going to find new buyers in the public, the American public, it sounds like, which is a bit problematic. So <laughs> yeah, a little bit. What, what do you do here? I mean, either you, you make substantial budget cuts and fix that $2 trillion deficit. And where are you going to find that money? It's like military. No, not right now. Entitlements, political suicide. No politician's ever going to do that. The third right. would be interest payments, which, which kind of gets back to the rate issue. So the second option is then to weaken the currency. We can't make the budget cuts, but what do you do when you're in debt? You inflate the currency, you expand the money money supply. I mean, that's the that's the blueprint that every empire has always followed, right? And exactly. so that's what we'll do, which will trigger runaway inflation or really hot inflation because you're, we're going to have to inflate the money supply dramatically, um, which kind of becomes a self-fulfilling crisis, right? That's the debt spiral, uh, the death spiral. That, um, it's the doom loop. That's the doom loop. Is that is that? Are you familiar with the, the fiscal dominance concept? I'm trying to wrap my mind around this a little bit right now. Um, can you explain it to me? No, what you're talking about. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> so I'm fiscal, not going to try. <laughs> well, if, you know, if we think about the term fiscal dominance, it, yeah, the U.S. dollar was the most powerful country when we when we became the world reserve currency. We had more gold than anybody else, and we had more the strongest military. But uh, that that's shifting, so that would create fiscal dominance. I want to I want to cover the, the the military angle as well with you. So okay, so I I I agree. This is a it's a game that's hard to see an exit strategy from, and so that would be the opportunity for some kind of a a forced reset, right? And enter Correct. CBDCs, right? This is kind of the window, right? 
So you see it that way as well. This is probably the door 100%. open for we need a new system. You need a new system, especially if the retail public's going broke. They'll be very amenable to new solutions, right? Especially if exactly. a little bit of cash in their pocket. So that that's a fair assessment that you could expect that, that to roll out with expeditious intent. Oh, 100%. And remember too, the Fed now system went into place in July. And whether people realize it or not, every single one of us has a, a an account at the Fed. And if you recall, or you might might or might not recall, but during the 2020 Cerveza crisis, which I'm still hesitant to actually say out loud, but during that crisis, the the our government came out and said, gee, it would be so much easier if we could just push a button and make a deposit into everybody's account so they could keep spending. Of course. So that's all in place now. And they want us to think that, CBDCs are they're still wondering and testing. I'm not so sure that that's true. I'm not so sure that's true at all. I think they're a lot further along than they want us to realize. What exactly is the Fed now system, Lynette? How do you understand that? That is a 24-7 instant payment system. But back in 2019, they had said that every single person, so even in the US, when you're in a really rural area, like I am with my bug out location, there's still a post office there. And so through the postal service, through through any um, credit unions, regional banks, community banks, commercial banks, all of the U.S. population has an account with the Fed. They just don't know it yet, but they will. And they will use that tool. Um, they want you to think of it like it's cash. Sure. Well, you know, of course, they want you to think of U.S. dollars like they're gold and yeah. silver, but they're yeah. not. And yeah. it's not cash either. It's a digital system that would, um, yeah, in a crisis, they push a button. Everybody's got a whole bunch of money to spend. We're a consumer-driven economy. And they spend it and they think, isn't this great? But there is no such thing as a free lunch. And freedom is not free. And convenience is not free either. So Fed now, that's the pipes. And the water's not flowing yet, but the pipes have been laying, right? Correct. Okay, so the the trade that's essentially the trade route, the goods and services haven't arrived, but the pipes have been laying. Now, you you talked about the strength of the U.S. military uh, a minute ago here, and I want to get your thoughts on this because I was having dinner with some friends last night and we were debating this, and I was saying, you know, we're now watching a second hot war break out in the Middle East. Nothing yep. about this convinces me it's going to be short or simple. I, I think this is right. going to be a very long, long-winded uh, battle. Um, now, the U.S. has already sunk a ton of resources into Ukraine, um, you know, draining the SPR, trying to make things work. There was an armory reserve, for example, in Israel. This is their Middle East army reserve. That's largely been drained to fund and fuel Ukraine over the last two years. Now they're fighting a second battle, a second proxy war. I would expect that if U.S. support for Ukraine was X, U.S. support for Israel is going to be X times 10. And so the expectation there will be a lot higher. Um, And what is the ability of the United States to maintain this and what happens two years down the road if it ha- if we see a new proxy war break out and China just decides to 
walk into Taiwan and change the sign on the door because they know there's nothing anybody can do about it at this point. Or am I missing something? You know, and some friends at dinner last night were were thinking, were debating, I guess, that we don't know the US's ability to restart the war machine, you know, like they did in the, in, you know, in the 40s, right? Uh, we're seeing some reshoring of industries, but that's a long, long process. Right. What's your take on that? Um, I, I don't know that it'll be another two years because I think uh, the blow, you know, my take on this is that the whole the whole world is in this together. That's why I said I'm not really convinced that these are all just coincidental, rather planned. And I can't, of course, prove that, but history shows us that. So for China to go into to Taiwan as they're draining the resources of the U.S., which are extremely stressed right now, as you can see in, in the lack of buyers on the treasuries, right? So I don't think they'll wait another two years. I don't think they have to wait another two years to do it. I think it's going to be a knockout punch that will send us into the next financial crisis. If, and I, I don't think, look, what's happening in the treasury market right now is that foundation shifting. Do you really, this, this, the global financial system is built on, on an earthquake fault. And you look at what's happening with the whipsawing of the prices. We're already at there. We're already there. We're already there. And that started in 2013. So people always think that there's more time, there's more time, there's more time. I'm not convinced that there's much more time because that's what I'm seeing. Yeah. So I want to dig into that a bit more because you're right. And it's easy to be convinced that there's more time because you can look a lot at a lot of these red flags and make the assumption that this is crazy. A $2 trillion deficit, that's crazy. $32 trillion in debt, that's crazy. As if $25 trillion in debt wasn't crazy or $20 trillion or 15 or 10. Those numbers were also crazy when we hit those. So you become apathetic to this and think, actually, we can kick this can a lot further down the road. I mean, 10 trillion was crazy, right? Half a billion, half a half a trillion well, dollars of, of deficit was it, crazy. So it's like, it's not news. And let me add something to that because in 2009, I did a study and I said, wow, we're about a trillion and a half in deficit spending right now. But why are we servicing 13, at that point, 2009, 13 trillion in debt? Well, if you go to the FRED, F-R-E-D, which is the Federal Reserve Education Department, you can go back into those spreadsheets and you can look at the data. And so I did that. And what I saw was that not only was, you know, with deficit spending, not only was the government not making any headway on the principal, but they weren't even paying all the interest. So the interest then goes into the principal and you're compounding interest. Now they've raised the rates. How much faster, how much exponential are we going to be in compounding those interest rates with the deficits $2 trillion? And how much of all of this is done off balance sheet, by the way? How much more is there that we just can't see because it's hidden from us because they don't want us to see it until it's too late? The Bank of America came out just recently saying, oh, yes, they don't expect any losses at all on the treasuries that they're holding to maturity. 
right? Held to maturity. Right. But, you know, that's garbage because the value of what they're holding in terms of purchasing power value, which is really the one that matters the most, is declining dramatically. And there are a tremendous amount of losses at the commercial bank level. So at the biggest bank level, JP Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, City, Goldman Sachs, all those guys, as well as the central bank level for all of the central banks around the world that are still sitting in those treasuries that they bought over that 15 year period with at zero interest rate, or even all those negative rates that were issued in Europe. Mm. Let me ask you a question. When we look towards the Fed, we look towards individuals like, uh, I mean, the president of the United States, the Fed chairman, et cetera, we can make these assumptions that they're trying to solve these problems, right? It makes sense. It's a logical assumption, right? That, you know, they're a public servant. So they're serving the public. They're trying to find solutions. But in reality, they're a human being. They're one single human being, just like you or I. Are they looking to solve these big problems or are they like you or I? They're looking to take care of their immediate family, right? They're looking for, they're looking for a good deal, right? Mm -hmm. They're looking out for themselves, like most people, and they're subject to the same fear and greed that drives human nature uh, all over the world. Um, you know, but but am I being too nihilistic there? Or is there, what do you think? No, I, no, I, I, I think that that is really, really accurate, although I'm trying to feed the world. Okay, I'm trying to change yeah, yeah, the yeah. world, yeah. personally. Um, but no, that, that, and that's the piece, you know, people think, oh, well, they have this under control. Uh, Paul Krugman came out the other day and said, that's it, inflation is conquered. I would love to, if any of your, if anybody out there knows Paul, let him and I sit down and have a conversation on camera. I would love that, totally love that. But um, because inflation has not been conquered, we have begun, if you, if you look at the monetary velocity charts and you look at what's happening, we are at the early stages of hyperinflation. There isn't one little doubt in my mind. And what's happening with all these debts and deficits and wars and the need for funding and, and all of the money that needs to go to the military, you know, that, that's only going to exacerbate yeah. where we already are. And yeah. so mom and pops, people that are counting on their retirement, and I don't care whether you're looking at pensions or you're looking at IRAs or you're looking at 401ks or you're looking at annuities, and I mean fixed annuities as well as variable rate annuities, you know, it doesn't really matter what you're looking at. If you're doing it in terms of this fiat money, well, this is also a good way to solve that crisis, Right. And, and point the finger because that's what they always do. They don't look in the mirror and say, look, we have responsibility in this. No, they say, oh, the war is causing the inflation. This is causing the inflation. That's causing the inflation. No, you guys, you central banks, you governments, you are the ones that are causing inflation because you, can't, you cannot stop spending. So no, they're human beings and they're very, they're, they're, I think it's very important to recognize that because it gets back to a core belief that I have that nobody has your back. We have this assumption like, oh, they're looking out for our best interests. At least they're trying, you know, trying to figure out policy and, you know, 
Maybe, I, I don't know, but I don't believe that's the case. And that's really good news because once you come to terms with the fact that nobody has your back, it puts you in the driver's seat and that's empowering. Exactly. Right? But as soon as you're outsourcing responsibility, you're just at the will and the whim of somebody else's poor decisions. And, uh, and yes. escaping that mindset is hyper, hyper critical. That's the personal sovereignty um, value that I hold so dearly. Okay. So I want to, uh, I want to, I want to maybe go a bit bigger picture here. So we've outlined a case for the United States empire and the U S dollar to be in their sunset years. Right. I think that's a fair Mm -hmm. assessment. Now, whether or not you want to dispute some of these uh, details we've discussed thus far, reflecting on history over the last 600 years, we've seen the rise and fall of the Portuguese empire, which kind of had a reserve currency from a maritime standpoint, Spanish Mm -hmm. empire, the Dutch empire, the British empire, now the United States empire. That gives you a bit of a hint at the expeditious nature with which power rotates around the globe. That's five empires in 600 years. So just using that as a base case. And then each one of those empires followed a very similar blueprint. They became hyperproductive when they were poor. That productivity led to wealth. Wealth led to decadence. The decadence led to debt and the debt led to decline. The debt led to decline. The decadence led to debt. So you tell me where we're at, right? In the American empire right now, it's like staring us in the face. But- what occurs in those declining years is, yes, the insolvency of the state. We talked about that. Generally, you also see in response to the wealth gaps that, that's created uh, there is like rising civil unrest that borders on civil war. You can make yep. a pretty sound case that we're getting close. And the third yep. is external competition that rivals that global superpower. Um, yep. Often, it's not just one power. It's like a syndicate of countries that put aside their ideological differences in order to align to unseat the global superpower. Like the uh, bricks. Like the bricks. Exactly. Right. So is the obvious answer though, is there an obvious answer to who may take the puck next, Lynette, in terms of becoming the global superpower? I think so. And I think that, you know, we've been moving or they've been trying to force us into a one world government and a one world currency for a very long time. And you know, it was 2009. And I, and and honestly, when 2008 happened, I knew that the system died and it was just put on life support with all this free money to make it appear to be okay. But uh, China actually came out and said, what about the SDR? Now the SDR is, has been around since 1969. It's a basket of currencies that's issued by the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, who there are 196 countries in the world. I think it's 191 right now are members of the IMF. And that's all treasury secretaries and central bank chiefs. And they are working on a one world currency so that governments and corporations, global entities would uh, work inside of this SDR, but then easily translate into the local currency. So I personally think that we're going into a system where, uh, I mean, neither one of those entities, treasury secretaries or central bank chiefs, neither one of them are elected. Right. right? So we're, I think that that the IMF is the one that's going to come and take over and be the global super superpower. Uh, They have, they, they say that they have the cleanest balance sheet because they don't have to issue debt. It's the members that are issuing debt. 
and they can open up the SDR to every single currency. There's no limitation as to how many currencies can go inside of that SDR. And then you have, it's even worse. I mean, unelected officials dictating. And if you look at the IMF's approach when they've loaned countries money, you know, look at Greece, austerity, 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 raise taxes, reduce benefits, which is what's going to happen anyway, whether it's the IMF or anybody else. They're not really going to have much of a choice of that. But uh, I don't I don't think it's going to be one entity. I think inside of the SDR, you will see uh, a number of countries, maybe even like the BRICS, because the BRICS are issuing their own currency, but that's so they, they can trade amongst themselves, as you were saying before, bypassing the dollar. So I, th I think the main control is going to, if they get away with it, all right? You, you also brought up revolution. There are some people that will say, this is a foregone conclusion. There's nothing we can do. We're going into this world of CBDCs. We're going into this world where the IMF um, rules. And I think we have a choice. I, I think we really need a revolution in this country. I think building community, I, I've recently come to realize, honestly, that building a global community as well as local communities is critically important because yes, you could take care of yourself maybe, but what do you need to sustain a reasonable standard of living? Food, water, energy security, barterability, wealth preservation, community, and shelter. Now, I personally have been working on that hard. Um, the gold and the silver for to maintain my wealth preservation and barterability and opportunity positioning since 2002 in earnest. But the rest of it, I've been working on really hard since 2010. If the system collapsed tomorrow, I'm really glad that I finally got to a position where I could support a community of 40 people. But typically, Jay, one person cannot do it by themselves, right? And especially if you haven't even started yet. But if we come together in community, we can support each other. You know, maybe somebody comes in and they have gardens, they have a farm, and another person comes in and they have that wealth preservation mechanism. So they have the gold and silver. And maybe an electrician comes in with the different skill sets. So building a community gives us optionality and it also removes a lot of the power from the governments and the central banks that don't have our back. Your point was so well taken that their job is to preserve their position. It's not about you or me. So we can come together. There's a lot more of us than there are of them. And, and the other thing I just, just realized the other day, because I, this may say, sound odd, but I have lived a very guided life. And I've known for a very long time that I was supposed to do something that had a positive impact on a lot of people. And, and that's, you see all of my work and everything that I'm doing. But the other day, what I realized is that if each individual person made a positive difference in a lot of people 
one person at a time, then we can take back our own sovereignty. There are more of us than there are of them. And I know I, I, I'm very hopeful because people are starting to wake up. Hopefully it won't be too late, but let me tell you, I'm, I'm doing my best to grow a lot of food for a lot of people, even more than the 40 that I anticipate having at my bug out and um, food becomes the biggest issue for most people. So that's, that's really, I hope we do have a revolution. I mean, I don't want people to die in this revolution, but if we come together in community and just say, no, if they put those CBDCs into our accounts and we, okay, go ahead, spend what they give you, but don't put it back in. We vote with our wallets. If we hold our wealth in physical gold and physical silver, that's outside of the system. That's the only thing that is truly outside of the system. And as the Bank for International Settlement says, that gold held at home runs no geopolitical risk. And it is the only, the only financial asset that runs no counterparty risk. All of the rest of that stuff, they're contracts. That's all counterparty risk. And they're the ones that wrote the contracts, not you or me. And right. who reads them? Hmm. Hmm. Oh boy. Okay. I think that <laughs> the uh, United States might be the only country in the world with the backbone to um, to execute on a, a revolution style scenario like that. I mean, obviously revolutions occur and are occurring globally, but from like a sovereign mindset standpoint, you know, I've been looking at this a lot lately. I'm reading this book right now called Ruska. It's like a 2000 year history of Russia, right? Trying to understand this a bit better. And, and in Russia has been subject to thousands of revolutions over 2000, probably not thousands, but definitely hundreds of revolutions over 2000 year history, as mm -hmm. has China over a 5,000 year history, et cetera. You'll, you'll see this. And what you often see is like a monarch is in power kind of authoritarian leadership, but becomes super greedy and corrupt. And the wealthy business leaders eventually overthrow that monarch and form an aristocracy, right? Sort of oligarch scenario. Mm -hmm. Same thing happens to them. Greed fuels uh, corruption, all this stuff. And the, the peasants eventually stand up and say, we overthrow them. They form a democracy, right? And that's when you get to the, the third stage. But eventually, democracies tend to descend into anarchy, uh, right. At which point the people throw their hands up in the air and they say, we want some kind of order because this is dangerous and we hate it. And so they elect a monarch again. They get back to the st stage one of that. And it, it struck me as so wild how frequently the population can bond together um, on a common um, common desire to overthrow a corrupt leader. And they'll storm the palace and they'll pull the prince out of his bedroom. And the first thing they'll do is nominate a new leader, right? And it's like, they just we need somebody to lead. it's It's amazing that people can 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 self-organize to that extent and overthrow a government. And the next step they take is to position a new one immediately, right? Right. Someone tell it's us what you, to do. It's like you did this on exactly. your own. Exactly. You're doing all right. It's why there's, <laughs> but but you know, your your point is so well taken that there are these repeatable patterns 
They want us to think short, 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 short term. Oh, that happened 15 seconds ago. That's old news. Mm. But that's not really the way things work. There are these repeatable patterns that you see that happen every time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and they always want you to think this time is different. But well, but it never is. It never is unless and like and I, the reason I say the U.S. might be the only country with the backbone to do this is because it's a country with no history. I mean, it's a it's a very short term experiment, right? You're not dealing with thousands of legacy tradition and culture. It's an invented nation, a couple hundred years old, and so maybe as a consequence of that, you know, things could be different in the United States. I mean, obviously, I have a bias there. Like I'm, you know, my family holds Canadian and American passports, so. So I know what I would like to see happen, but, uh, um, well, you know, I, I just went to, I took my, my, uh, two of my grandchildren and my daughters to Washington, DC. And we went and we saw the original documents and we went to all of the, the different monuments and we went to Gettysburg and we, we did all of these things and I'm getting chills right now, um, from that too, because, we have so undermined what the founding fathers having known that history that you're talking about, that they were trying to institute. And we've degraded it. I mean, constitutional, what's constitutional anymore? But it made me feel stronger about the ability to create a revolution and take our sovereignty back. We, the people, we, the people. So, and we are seeing the rise of the unions again and the power that the people have, you know, people aren't going back to work or they've changed careers or they've done this or they've done that. So we are seeing the rise of the worker again as well. Okay. Now I do have to, I, I want to jump back to a previous topic here because I, I have some okay. questions about it and, uh, and I, I like staying on this thread too, but just because okay. you mentioned the IMF and you mentioned SDRs, um, if we could try to add some clarity that what that is exactly. Now, SDRs are there's special drawing rights, right? On that's the name. The, okay, so this is and what it is is a drawing right on an IMF unit, which is kind of a currency, but kind of not a currency. But it's a right. unit of exchange. Is that correct? So these are units issued by the IMF. So an SDR system. And I don't know how this would function. I'm in way of my head here, but countries would have SDR privileges to purchase or transact for IMF units with which to conduct global trade. Is that, was that, what's going well, on? Here? Actually, the IMF uh, or the SDR has been around, like I said, since 69, and it was originally created to take over as the world reserve currency from the US. But then, of course, Kissinger went to Saudi Arabia and created the petrodollar. And so we retained our status. The SDR essentially has been used in international um, goods and exchanges. It's in all everybody's post office. So if you go in and in the search bar, you put SDR, the most likely outcome is it's going to pop up. And I'm talking about in your in your local post office, right? So everybody is granted a level of SDRs. And yes, you can buy more SDRs, but everybody is granted SDRs. It was kind of sleepy for a long time until 2008. Mm. 
And then the IMF tested all of the systems that they had in place, including the substitution fund. So the substitution fund is, uh, is a mechanism by which if you're holding US dollars or dollar denominated, it's hard for me to call them assets, but you know, like bonds and things like that, you can deposit those into that substitution fund and then the IMF will convert them into SDR denominated. Again, it's hard for me to call them assets, but instruments and tools of trade. And that way, the SDR from being, um, you know, not the largest store of currency in the world could easily become the largest currency in the world, almost like almost that fast. But um, what they do is they, they issued a whole bunch more SDRs and they give it to you based upon your position in the global economy, whatever your GDP is. So the larger countries like China and the US would get a lion's share of the SDRs and then smaller countries would get smaller SDRs, but they just issue them. They can create them from thin air. Now they may have to, you know, since they're a basket of currencies, in theory, anyway, any country that makes a deposit into that substitution fund, the IMF then can then, in theory, regulate the speed at which the US dollars are sent back to the US. That's just a theory. I don't think that would actually work. But any fiat money, and that's what this is, it's a fiat currency. They're decreeing, they're declaring that this is something that has some value to it. And they're turning it into legal tender. I, I don't know that we will have SDRs, but ideally in their mind, not my mind, in their mind, everything, all of your wealth, all of the equity is held on your cell phone, right? So that no matter where you are, you are then encouraged through manipulation, perception, management, all the tools that they have at their disposal, uh, their disposal to actually spend your equity in your home and in, in your wealth, whatever it is that you have. And yeah, go back to feudal times to your point. Uh, but the SDR is just a name. It doesn't really mean anything. It's just another tool to transfer your freedoms away to an entity that's even farther away than your elected officials. Okay. Okay. So in that sense, the SDR is, is we could just simply call another fiat currency, the issuing Absolutely. party. Uh, the issuing body is the IMF. Therefore, the IMF is our counterparty risk to that fiat currency, the same as any issuing government is the counterparty risk to that bank note that we're holding. You know, you can, so I, you know, you could make the argument, I, I might not make this, but that the US dollar used to be backed by gold. And since they broke the gold standard, you could argue that the US dollar is backed by the net asset value of the United States. And that net asset value is a, summation of the military strength, the medical system, the uh, education system, their taxation ability, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the trade competency or trade strength on a global level, all this stuff. And that 
is what backs the U.S. dollar, which is just to say trust, right? The, well, the, right, because what are what are we told? We're told that any of these fiat currencies are backed by the full faith and credit of that government. Yes. So yes. that's I mean, yeah, that's like so simple, and everybody knows that they don't really understand necessarily what that means. But so, as long as you trust them, you have faith in them. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll keep loaning them money, extending them credit. Correct. So do you know what would the net asset value of the IMF be and where would the trust in that fiat currency come from? Good no. question. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Good question. You shadows. Know, and, Comes from the shadows. Yeah. Exactly. It's it's yeah. just from the public going, oh, okay. Look, they're they're smarter than I am. They know more than I do. They must be. Yeah. So there's a couple of things there. Number one is yes, we tend to put uh elected and non-elected leaders up on pedestals of power and perceived right. perceived competency. Um, you know, I heard this great quote the other day: perceived success supersedes talents. And it's not an absolute truth, but there's a lot of truth in that. Perceived success supersedes talent because we put people up on a pedestal based on what we think about them, yeah. regardless of what they're actually competent to do. Um, that was the secret to Arnold Schwarzenegger's success. I mean, he worked really hard, but his motto was work hard and advertise. It's like, people don't get it. They just spend their whole life working hard. No, no, no. You got to work hard and then tell everybody about the hard work you did because perception of success actually supersedes talent in terms of getting you where you want to go in life. Very interesting philosophy. Um, it is. So, okay. So, um, the argument for an IMF SDR, therefore, would be maybe some mystery around, oh, they're telling us it's okay, so it's okay, but probably the convenience factor, right? And convenience will win votes nine days out of 10. Yeah, and I think people are so removed from who the IMF is and, and the power that they wield. And oh, by the way, none of their members have to pay taxes anywhere. Right. Okay. Which I think is real interesting. I mean, they are sovereign unto themselves and they are everybody's again, treasury secretary, central bank chiefs. You know, you got you got to really think about who is going to be controlling it. And that's also one of the reasons why I am not convinced that it's them versus us or vice versa. That's the way, you know, they want the divide and conquer. They want you to think that. But they all meet all the time. Yeah. Okay. This has been really valuable because I've spent a lot of time thinking about the you know the the cycle of empire recently, and mm -hmm. and with one big question that empires typically descend into a, an era of global chaos, which is relatively short lived uh, compared to the eras of prosperity, but they're chaotic mm -hmm. when they're occurring. You know, mm -hmm. and so if you get a, a decade of chaos, it may pay you back with five decades of prosperity. But it's really hard to tell who's going to come out on top through that decade of chaos. But generally speaking, it is a consolidation of power, right? And yes, that's what that's what absolutely. occurs. And so the question mark is like, well, who's going to consolidate that power? And a lot of people would say, oh, probably China. You look at, you know, their their share of global trade and 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 the growth of their GDP, but they've got substantial demographic issues and the same debt problems everybody has. So. It's not clear to me that that's the obvious winner. And just because the U.S. is a global empire, you know, from sea to shining sea, this big country, we make the assumption the next empire will be a big country. But Holland's not a big country. You know, no one would have guessed the tiny island of England would become a global superpower like it did. Same with Portugal and Spain, you know, from a distance on, on a map, you're like, I don't see it. But they accomplished this, right? And so it can come from places you don't expect. 
and the next consolidation of power might come from a place we completely don't expect, which is not a bordered sovereign country, but some kind of weird governing body like the IMF. Uh, I need to understand. Right. But also, Jay, whoever holds the gold has real purchasing power because gold is used in every single sector of the global economy and does not require any sovereign to say this is money. It's been treated as money for thousands of years. So, and the IMF, you know, the countries give the IMF gold, right? So I think it's whoever really actually holds the most gold. You know, it looks like the U.S. does, but do they really? I don't know. I think there's going to be a big accounting and a big reckoning, and that question will be answered. But, um, you know, I think gold has a lot to do with this because this fiat money, whether it's U.S. dollars or Canadian dollars or, or SDRs or anything, it requires public confidence. And what happens at the end of this cycle is there is a component of gold in that new currency, whatever that currency is, because the public loses all confidence in the pure fiat money. So I think it could definitely come out of left field. I think it could definitely be the IMF. I think it would be very easy for them to have the most actual gold versus just saying, well, this is how much we have. You can't audit it. We can't count it. And even if you see those bars, you don't know who the legal owner is because they just changed title. Yeah. Yeah. But okay. the public could be the one that holds the most gold too. Couldn't mm -hmm. it? Uh, well, yeah. I, I mean, that'd be nice. I, I, the lesson I want to pull from this is like how important it is to understand that you're the only one who has your back. Therefore, you got to think for yourself. And as you're doing very actively, think for your community, right? I mean, and that's the the high utility and the reason that pursuing wealth is a noble uh, pursuit because yes, wealth gives you the ability to be the rock that somebody can lean on. And you can choose not to share any of it. That's your option. But if you don't generate wealth, you don't even have the choice. You know what I mean? So I'm all in on that. And right. I think what you're doing is very, very important and leading by example, Lynette, by the way, it's very inspiring to watch. Um, but thinking for yourself means surveying your surroundings and saying, where, where am I at risk though? Subject to mm -hmm. the poor decision yes. against somebody else. Where am I subject to counterparty risk? Right. Yes. You can identify that. And then by eliminating those risks, you build your personal sovereignty and your personal strength, right. And your durability through chaotic times which is hyper, hypercritical. And that I think is very important right now. By the way, I'm not a pessimist about the future. Like I, I feel really good about the long trend, you know, but the yeah, long I'm an short. optimist about it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But when these cycles reset, it can be really chaotic for a few years. And we're probably going through that right now. I think that's, that's pretty obvious. So yeah. yeah. yeah Look, yeah. Lynette, this has been a fascinating conversation. Um, and and I learned a lot, which I really, really appreciate. That's why I love doing this so much. And I always like working with you too, because I learn a lot from you. And and we can, we can all learn from each other. No one person has all the answers. No one person can see everything. No one person can put all of this together. You know, you say I lead by example. Well, what I've done is I've 
put a really good solid community around me to help me develop this, then that enables me to expand that community. So, and there are all right. different ways that you can build it, but yeah, no, I, I you think I have the time to go out and, and put in gardens and hang up solar and, you know, do all of these things, secure my water, secure all of that. No, yeah. I have a community around me that's helping me accomplish that. That's super and cool. And that's something I think everybody can do. Really, you just, you know, once you have that mindset, then you just move into it and trust that the right person, the right people will show up. They mm. will show up. Like that. I like that. Okay. Um, you coming to Vancouver in January? I am. Awesome. Yes, I am. I'm very excited. Awesome. We've got okay. it on our calendar already. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. It's going to be tons of fun. Uh, January 21st and 22nd. So looking forward to getting you back on stage, doing this in person and being joined by a bunch of other friends. It's an absolute blast. Lynette, thanks again for your time today. It's always uh, super fun chatting with you. My pleasure, Jay. I'll see you soon. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.